Hey, I'm Sana Rao and you're listening to the Progression Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. This episode I've been talking to Sana Rao. Sana is heading the design team at Deliveroo where she's been for the last two and a bit years. She and I worked together for a while, had a great time, I consider her a close friend. We talked for quite a long time about her fascinating background. She was born and grew up in India before making a big jump to the States, to the School of Visual Arts, to uh, take a course that would change her life. Uh, We talked a lot about her time at the School of Visual Arts, her time in India, uh, and then what happened after that at Twitter, where she was for nearly four years, uh, working on some projects that definitely will have affected the interfaces that you use every day. We talked about sponsorship, uh, the difference between mentorship and sponsorship, and Mike Davidson, who was a, a good sponsor to Sana, while she was at Twitter. Um, we talked about how to tackle diversity and, and inclusion, organizational change, and shifting a team into a new way of thinking as the needs of the business change. And she wrote a really interesting blog post about how the delivery design team has changed over the last year or so. I absolutely loved talking to Sana. There's no sponsor for this episode. Uh, sponsors will be coming back from the next episode, but having a little break mainly because couldn't find a sponsor. <laughs> so, you know what? I'm going to sponsor it. Sponsored by me. Uh, if you want to sign up to Progression, head to progressionapp.com. Just today, in fact, we started inviting more teams. Uh, we're kind of moving from alpha to beta, which is really exciting. So that means that that waitlist is going to start decreasing and you're going to get an opportunity to use the product if you want to. Okay, that's enough. Enjoy this awesome conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Progression Podcast. I'm sitting opposite Sana Rao, who uh, I have been friends with for a while. Uh, We used to work together, uh, and uh, it's great to be literally sitting in the same room as you, Sana, because usually I talk to people on uh, the internet exclusively. I don't like to get too close to people. <laughs> it's great to be here next to you, Johnny. <laughs> um, so, Sana, uh, for those people that don't follow you on Twitter or uh, kind of who haven't followed your work or, or that kind of stuff, um, could you give us a little potted history of from the very beginning, if you can? So, you have a really interesting kind of backstory. Your origin story, your superhero origin story is super interesting. So um, from the very beginning, how do you find yourself here today? Oh, okay. Where do I start? Um, So super beginning. Um, I started my career in India. I went to the school called National Institute of Design, which is one of the best design schools in the country. Um, It's modeled after the Bauhaus um, and started by the Indian government in collaboration with uh, Charles and Ray Eames. So it goes like back to 1960s. And um, I think when I first heard about the school, and at that point I was I was not into academics at all. And like the only thing that was interesting to me was art. Um, and then turns out <clears throat> what I was really interested in was design and problem solving. Uh, and so when I found that school, it was like a light bulb moment for me. It was just like, this is all I want to do. Um, 
and the school, you know, was very interesting and that was like learning by doing, uh, which was very new to the Indian academic system um, and something that I really, really took to very quickly. Um, and I really enjoyed being a part of that school. Um, we learned everything. Like we had a year of foundation, um, which was pretty pretty much every design discipline. And then we were allowed to choose. So I kind of went into graphic design, which is more traditional old school graphic design background doing logo design. Um, <clears throat> worked in some branding agencies in India for a while. And then pretty soon, uh, I kind of realized that I was peeking out um, <laughs> in the country because at that point, design was quite nascent. This is talking about like 2008, 2009 um, in India. And it was just kind of like I'm getting to a point where I was in companies where I could see the most senior person doing the same kind of work that I was doing just a little bit faster. Um, and I, you know, was like, that's not the way I see myself progressing. That doesn't seem quite like appealing to me. Um, and so I kind of had this like existential crisis, which is like, you know, a theme for me every few years in that I kind of quit my job um, and just stayed at home and researched for what I wanted to do because I didn't quite have the language for what I wanted. Um, and after like loads of researching, um, I, I think the main thing that I was looking for was like my work I felt too static for me. And I wanted to do something that was like felt that there was some kind of feedback loop, but I didn't have the vocabulary for it. Um, and so like lots of Google searches later, I found um, School of Visual Arts, which is a school in New York. Um, and this program, which is an MFA in interaction design program, started by Liz Danzico, um, who is incredible. Uh, and when I saw the program and I saw the all the courses on the program, I kind of was like, had that moment where I was exactly what I was looking for. Um, I had no intention of going to America. Uh, actually, I wanted to be in Europe somewhere because that's where I felt like I, I you know, identified a little bit more culturally. Um, but that course seemed like it would make or break my life, my career. And and I just up and left um, to New York. I didn't know anyone. And this, you know, sounds like a cliche, but like I actually didn't know anyone. I didn't have a lot of money because like working in India, I was getting paid like $300 a month, right? So I had no savings. Um, and I got there. Um, and uh, fortunately, I had a couple of friends there who were also studying in different, you know, fashion institute technology, other institutes. So we kind of just rented uh, a studio apartment between like three people in Manhattan um, because that's all we could afford. Um, and like, I still think that was the best decision I ever took in that the school and the program was so carefully curated. Um, and the and the you know practitioners and the people that I studied with are people that I still are you know call my advisors and people who are my tribe, yeah. um, and you know they're the people who were actually working in the industry during the day and coming to teach us during the evening. So they were so cued in to what what was needed at that industry because a lot of times in academia you have people who are like so far divorced from what's the reality of the industry that you don't really <clears throat> when you get out there's too much of a friction between what is needed and what you were taught. Absolutely. Yeah, the, I mean, we should, yeah, the state of education is a, a really interesting kind of side tangent. But uh, before that, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what what the process of leaving India and going to America was. You know, I, I, know, um, I know people who live in India now who are Indian and that, for whom the thought of, that jump is, you know, the, the complete life-changing moment, but is also somewhat unusual. And um, 
there were almost definitely expectations on you that you then decided to go in a direction that that was somewhat different. So that kind of making that decision, then making that move, and all of that risk. What was the? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, it was a huge risk. But I, you know, I personally have always been a believer in like taking calculated risks. So I, you know, that's the only way like I have found in my career that you grow, like if you don't take risks, you stagnate. Um, And I, when I, you know, was reading about it, I basically spent pretty much better part of two months just researching, talking to alumni, talking to the faculties, making sure that it was good because it's expensive. Like private education in America is ridiculous. Like you can spend your entire life trying to make the money to pay that back. Um, and I knew that it was going to be um, a big decision to take, big you know financial burden for me as well. Um, I think the moving to America bit was a, was culturally, um, I think I expected it to be a bigger shock than it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think purely because I felt I've always felt like a misfit um, anywhere <laughs> that I've been, especially in India. I think the cultural expectations of um, of a woman is supposed to do and like, you know, design being at, at this, the stage that it was being that like, I felt like I didn't quite had, have the freedom um, to be, you know, different. I didn't quite have the freedom to be the person that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I think just because like India, you know, is has, because of its colonial history, the way that it works is quite similar to the way that England works. There's still a lot of hierarchies. Um, and that really grated me. Like, I'm not an authority person. Um, and so when I first went to America, I, I remember, like, people who I had only read about or, like, thought that were my heroes, like, talking to me and, you know, just addressing me as equals. Uh, and, you know, I remember I'm part of my, one of my first interviews I ever did in the States was at New York Times. And the creative director, like, I was just an intern at that point, And, like, he called me in my office and said, Sana, I'm such a big fan of your work. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> me, this person? Uh, how do you even know my name? Right? I think that was the moment where it, where that flipped for me. Is that in, because, like, just population, the kind of, you know, hierarchies in India, you always, you are the person who have to, who has to go to companies and go, please, will you please look at this work and see? There is no, there's absolutely no concept of meritocracy. And, like, actually, there is no meritocracy anywhere. And, I, and you know, I know that. But there is... There is some idea of like, if you're good, people will respect you. You know, the classic like American dream. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So I did very much find that. Uh, And I, because, I mean, I was set up in SV as a school. I felt like I had a little bit of a soft landing in that. Like I landed with a group of extremely like-minded people who were equally ambitious um, and were set out into the world to make their careers at the the same time. Um, I felt like I had a tribe to lean on. And that yeah. made a huge difference. Yeah. And, I, and making all of those decisions, that, that huge leap to, to get to that course, which involved, you know, moving countries and taking a big financial risk, all that kind of stuff, probably put you in a position to be able to really capitalize on the course. Whereas other people just going, well, I don't know, I fancy doing something arty and got a trust fund or whatever. and might have turned up and kind of half-assed it, not got so much out of it. Oh, yeah, completely. I I felt like when I got there, like, I was probably the one of the most ambitious people in the class and that I never thought I was ambitious before uh, because in India, everyone's ambitious, right? Like, it's a gross generalization to say that, but, like, there's just too many people to compete with. Right. So everyone has to be. Um, and when I got there, because I had 
spent so much time thinking about it and yeah. so much money and so much, like, I was, you know, I didn't have a place to, like, sleep at a few nights, right? So yeah. there was just so much at stake that I had to look at. Yeah. So um, I've heard a few kind of anecdotes from that time, you know, as over the last few years. But I'm really interested in the, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was there that you got given this course about how to market yourself, how to put yourself out there, especially as an introvert. We can get onto introversion, you know, throughout this, but um, it's something that we've talked about a bunch. But uh, what was that? Yeah, um, absolutely. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, actually. <laughs> so there was this course, I mean, the whole whole program was, you know, geared towards how do you, uh, it's, it was very entrepreneurial in spirit, and that's the, the reason I liked it and wanted to go for it. But there was a one specific course which was led by uh, Gary Chu and Christina Cacciopo. And they, uh, like Gary now runs this um, thing called Orbital in New York, which basically helps people start their own businesses. Uh, and that came out of that program, uh, which was called Entrepreneurial Design. Um, and that was, uh, I remember, like, it was the first year they were teaching it. too. It was our first year, you know, experimenting. We were the guinea pigs. And the whole course was set up. Like, it's very hard to teach you how to be an entrepreneur, right? Like, it was set up to first get us to get an audience. Because I think the, the like, Gary really believed in the power of networks. Um, and at that point, none of us, like, social media was just about beginning. Like, we didn't know how to get networks. We didn't even know what that even meant. Uh, yeah. And, like, we are just students. Like, we didn't know if we had anything to say <laughs> to even have an audience. Um, and so they were, like, these small little... Um, little thing, like tasks that were assigned to slowly get us to understand what it means to get an audience and what it takes to get an audience. Yeah. So it wasn't this like hokey, you know, like market yourself, like, you know, buy ads kind of a thing. But it's like, actually, how do you generate content that resonates with people so that you find an audience that truly connects to you so that no matter where you go, no matter how many years later, like people still follow you because you because of the original, like, you know, thoughts and ideas yeah. that you bring rather than, like, something that you did. Like, yeah. products are replaceable. People can copy it. There's competition, right? Like, but you, as a unique individual, you will have the same way of looking at things, a unique way of looking at things that people can then resonate with and follow you. Um, and so, like, one of, like the, one of the first things that we had was just get 20 retweets. What is mm -hmm. that? Like, it, it sounds such a trivial thing, right? But, like, yeah. the, uh, how, what do you have to do? What do you have to write? in order for 20 people to want to broadcast that on their own networks. Uh, like, it has to be something that they believe in. Um, and so there was this set of 10 uh, assignments that led up to this final assignment, which was called the $1,000 project. Um, and um, I remember the time then, like, Gary and Christina told us this project, we were all just like, looked at each other and like, this is impossible. There's just no way we're going to do this. And the project was basically that you had to... Uh, get to a point where you're making $1,000 a month in a repeatable way right. by doing something. And the whole concept was that you once you find a way to make money repeatedly uh, in a scalable way, just your rent money, then you can actually focus your efforts uh, and your time on doing something that you want to do mm. um, and experimenting. But like as long as you can't pay your rent, you will never be able to focus there. Um, and so the whole concept was like, how do you how do you make that repeatable money? And we were just like, there's no way we're students. We're not making $1,000 a month. How are you? How is this ever going to happen? Um, but I think that, like, the pursuit of that um, helped us. And, like, one of the first things we had to do was, like, put up, just put up a blank, like, landing page mm -hmm. on, on it, 
like somewhere on the internet and don't promise anything, but get people to kind of like part with like even a dollar of their money, which is a big thing. Like the fact that you're asking people to give their like credit card numbers online to like some entity that they have no idea what this entity is, what the concept is. And it was challenging, like things like, you know, getting people who were your heroes to like have a coffee with you and record like, you know, an, an interview with them. The skills that you need are all these skills that you need as an entrepreneur to thrive because it's all you have to be able to be self-motivated. Pull these things out of your toolkit and figure out how you're going to make your company survive. Yeah. I mean, all of that resonates with me so much over the last year. And, you know, you sent me a bunch of the, I'm not sure we should say this. I don't know if it's... uh, It's it's open source. Okay, fine. Yeah. Oh, so we could link to it even. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, Sana sent me a whole bunch of material from this course because... uh, was starting a journey of working out how to market myself. You know, when you go from a uh, a juggernaut company like Deliveroo to having to work out how to make $1,000 a month uh, yourself, which is what I've been doing as well. Actually, every social channel, every opportunity becomes, you know, you, you have to start thinking creatively and, and put yourself in positions that make you feel uncomfortable as well, in, repeatedly, uh, and then be comfortable with some of them not working and others working. So I've just, you going through that process, I've seen um, what that results in uh, as someone who knows you and someone that follows you on Twitter and all this kind of stuff. Um, But can you point to specific times when kind of benefited from that afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, very tangibly, like uh, during that course, one of the 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 My Thousand Dollar Project, along with one of my friends, Nikki Sidenting, was this project called Postcard Poets. Um, and that was, um, uh, you know, it's no longer a, a company. Uh, like, we ran it for a year. Uh, but it was the whole concept was that you would, you could go online, subscribe to uh, poets, poet curators, um, and they would, uh, if there was the dreamer, there was the existentialist, there was the comic, um, and you, they would send you poetry on, like, postcards, like typewritten postcards through the month. And it was like something that really, really came, you know, from my heart and um, something that I still, you know, feel like if I were ever to go and start a company, like that's the kind of company I would want. Because like even when we were shutting it down and, you know, that's the whole story and like shutting it down and that because it was scaling and scale was not something I was practicing at that point of time. um, I got messages from people who were like this, this, I keep these, you know, these letters as trophies. Um, and, uh, there was like, it, it just meant like, even if it was just a few people, I think, remember, I remember like we were figuring out our metrics of scale and our metrics of success when yeah. we were first starting out. Like, even if there are a few people who feel like it brought some meaning to their life, that's enough for me. Um, and like that, the audience that I was able to find mm-hmm. because of these, because of this program, um, through for like, and through Postcard Poets, is an audience that still connects with me and still follows me and still like listens to what I have to say because yeah. the concept of postcard poets comes from a place that you know is something deep like is from human connection is something that's yeah. deeply meaningful to me and is definitely the core kind of like tangent through all of my work mm-hmm. um, that I've done and so like there are people who I met during that time who I still talk to um, like people who still come up to me and say I remember this and I was like how. How is this possible? It was like six years ago. Um, so that's definitely, and in a more tangible way, like actually helped me get 
um, in, in the U.S., like obviously you, uh, as an immigrant, you have to go through a lot of hurdles to get visas. And the visa that I was on was called Ovan, which is like, it's like a very funny term, but it's like outstanding alien. Right. Um, and because of that course, because of the, you know, the audience and the press and all of that stuff, like I was able to even think of applying for that for yeah. that uh, visa and stay, like actually physically change the direction of my life and that yeah, it's crazy how these kind of tangential things, and often those decisions aren't even made by you, right? But but those things that you chose to do changed everything. But at the moment, they felt like small decisions, or they felt like, oh, this is just something I'm doing today, or, or whatever it is, um, and then end up facing you in such a different direction. Um, so you left SVA, graduated. What next? Um, I went to Apple for a little bit, uh, but kind of eventually ended up at Twitter. Um, um, that was like early days, social media, uh, pre-IPO Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. And it was like this design team of 10 people called the mainstream design team, which was the team that worked in the core product. And um, it was like, we had no idea what was coming. You know, <laughs> like social media now, uh, we were all, you know, bunch of kids like sitting in a room um, in a company that was founded on like deep anarchist roots yeah. um, thinking about how to make the world a better place and how to how to and I think like that whole thing that I was talking about like this human connection bit was the thing that led me there but like I truly do believe um, in the power of of that platform in the mm-hmm. on the power of being able to reach out and meet people who you otherwise <clears throat> would never have access to like especially like someone as I, as I know that I was in India and there's no way that I would have found this program if it wasn't for being able to follow people on the internet through places like Twitter. And um, so, yeah, it was like early, early days. Like uh, I was there for about four-ish years um, and I saw the company go from, you know, like pre-IPO, like taking big risks, like everything, nothing's precious to like a really big, mature, a uh, hundred people design team um, conglomerate, um, <laughs> right? And uh, saw what happens to teams and what happens to companies as as leadership changes, as companies like direction changes, as commercial profitability becomes more important. Um, and that was thrilling. That was amazing. Like I remember being there at the day that uh, Twitter IPO'd at like 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. because it was New York time when the bell was being rung. And so we were all in the office at 6 a.m. like <laughs> celebrating. And it was just the most bizarre moment because I remember thinking that, you know, there are not that many moments in your life where you where you see transitions happening on a specific day like that. And suddenly, like a switch, everything was different. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Um, and And particularly wild for you, it must have been because as you say, Twitter will have been one of the, the resources you will have been looking at in India, thinking, oh, so this is this is kind of a you tapping into tech culture and, and all of these things going on the other side of the world. And then to be able to craft that experience is pretty... Yeah, absolutely. And like one of the first projects I did at Twitter was like redesigning uh, Twitter profiles. Um, and, you know, I don't know if anyone remembers like I, I've forgotten what it was like, but I, at that point, like profiles were just meant to be for brands. So it wasn't about human humans and personalities and how to reflect that. And like coming from the background that I came from and like, you know, 
being on Twitter, learning to have an audience also has the other sides like, you know, that we've talked about. The internet talks about a lot, like the spam and the abuse that comes yeah. with it, right? And being, you know, a person of color, being a vocal, opinionated woman on the internet, I get a lot of abuse. I get a lot of, like, dick pics. I get a lot <laughs> of that stuff, right? And and to be that person uh, and bring that, the, quite honestly, the team wasn't diverse. No one, no one in Silicon Valley was thinking about diversity at that point. Yeah. Um, and coming to the team and like thinking about these problems and showing, you know, my team members that look, these are the followers that I have, and these is, this is the kind of abuse I get. And um, and seeing them go like, how is this possible? I've never bunch of white dudes. They <laughs> <laughs> never witnessed this before. Yeah. Um, and so like that was that was you know big burden to bear. Uh, but also I felt like. I was able to think about scenarios and use cases and like design things in a way that felt more inclusive and more like understanding what happens. Because like I have a twin sister and she is an extreme, like she's the reason I got on Twitter. Like she's a lawyer in the Supreme Court of India. And she was always, she has been like early, like even before I was on Twitter, she has been on Twitter and she was like, she used to tweet about like, you know, canonical like landmark judgments um, from inside the courtroom when no press was allowed. Um, and I saw the abuse she got um, because of being, uh, you know, a minority religion woman who is a lawyer. Like all those, it's like intersectionality was the the level of abuse was so high. And that was one of the reasons where I was like, I want to be in the system to be able to affect any change. You can't do it complaining from outside. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much you want to talk about this. You've definitely told me in the past. Just back on being a vocal Asian woman on Twitter, uh, working at Twitter and rolling out features that affect not just a tweet that people can get riled up about, but literally how Twitter works. So you're really, you're really, those trolls have, you know, a huge amount of, you know, uh, content to work with and and, um, rolling out new profiles. I remember you telling me about this, what that felt like as someone who was visibly designing that that new experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So and I think like at that point, like I remember writing like I did the blog post on the Twitter um official blog. Um and I didn't like obviously I should have foreseen that, but like attaching my name uh to something like visibly like and I think that's this is true for every social like any heavily used social platform or platform, right? Like people get used to uh, a specific way of working and the, the people who are fans or diehard like users are are resistant to change because they are not inside and they they don't see why things need to change. And so this is not that wasn't an experience that was unique to me in that like everyone at Twitter are like and I'm sure at Facebook and all of these somebody's still like every time you would do like, you would kind of like change something, you would just get this barrage of people writing back or saying like why why are we doing this? Like you should be fired and like I'm going to kill myself and <laughs> And like even to that that extreme, and obviously Twitter is a platform that allows for that kind yeah. of extreme speech, right? And so that that is what you get. That yeah. that is the the you enable those those experiences. So there's no like as a designer, you can't say this is right or wrong. Like people are attached to your to the product that you're building, and that's a position of privilege. Um, and I but I do like remember being acutely conscious of what you're enabling. Um, when you're creating these things and like obviously we've seen a huge 
um, <clears throat> impact of what those tools like they literally create the the di- dialogue that we have they literally change like the fact that we had 140 characters changed the tone of everything changed the the way people communicated because it tended towards the snippy the negative the yeah. sassy rather than the thoughtful and the mm-hmm. and the like intelligent discourse obviously that also comes from an extremely like privileged position where like I like to have intellectual discourse and mm-hmm. believe that everyone is able to do that but that's not true that not everyone wants to engage in that kind of discourse and definitely one of the one of the the reasons that the you know the platform ended up all of these platforms ended up where they were where, like we didn't see far enough to include that the diversity in the range of experiences in the world yeah I mean I don't know how much you want to talk about Twitter and the last two, three years, you know, Jack has been uh, the subject of lots of, I'm sure he, the abuse he gets is unreal. Um, but you mentioned anarchist roots and I wonder how much what Twitter is today, which has this kind of symbiotic relationship with things like uh, far right. Uh, you know, there's, there's fascists and there's kind of... Uh, very strong opinions on on both sides, and it's hard to work out whether those people would have existed anyway and had a, and found a different way to broadcast, or whether Twitter is actually enabling things to happen that otherwise wouldn't have happened, uh, and what the responsibility is on the company of something like that. Do you think how this is really hard, probably for you to, yeah. to talk about? But um, are there things, are there decisions that were made when you were there that you think have kind of accidentally or on purpose led to this free speech kind of gone to, to an extreme yeah i don't know if i can talk that much about <laughs> it there were though but uh, i don't think i can talk about it okay much. damn <laughs> <laughs> um i can i think the 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 thing that people don't realize is that there's a lot of benefits that come from it right like the like the, obviously right now we're seeing an extreme negative manifestation of what the platform enables but um, it enables the same thing in a positive way. Like it enables people to find, people to find, like enables Black Lives Matter. It enables like all of these movements, like Arab Spring, all of these movements that previously had no way of, you know, creating movements. Uh, similarly, it's created this alt-right movement. Uh, and I don't know if it's created it and that it's enabled people who had similar methodologies or, or like mindsets to find each other and amplify their, like amplify each other's voices. Um, so each, every platform has, has like, you know, the society, everything you have in a society has like the positive and the negative. It's almost about, I think the thing that I, I truly believe right now, which isn't happening is which side of the history you want to be on. Um, and I don't want to divorce myself from any responsibility going like, you know, I had no hand in this. Like, obviously I was there. I was as a designer thinking about those problems. Uh, but I, I do think that like by creating a platform where you, now, at this stage in, in the, uh, the world uh, climate, in that if you say that I'm creating an unfair, like a completely fair platform for both those parties to engage in debate and expect that both those, both those people are engaging in like equally intellectual and fair and nuanced debate, that's just not possible. So by siding with a, the fair debate, you're siding with the, the more vocal, the more negative, the more oppressive voices taking over the platform because that's just the reality of the world. The people who are loud, who shout louder, yeah. who are more negative, take up more space. 
yeah, vocal minority. Yeah. So on a lighter note, still on Twitter, but um, I went viral this week. Don't know if you saw. Oh my god, no! I did not see yeah. that. Over three thousand likes. <laughs> wow! Yeah. What, what was it? Um, <laughs> it was silly. It was about buying domains, and then um, I think it was something like your one-year domain renewal, like I'm hot, bad product. Oh, yeah. Like <laughs> oh, anyway, yeah. so I, I, yeah. I kind of flippantly wrote it and then was surprised when that was the tweet. My next most popular tweet has been like 80 likes. So, oh, my God. So it was a real, you know, I learned, I learned what notifications look like when there's lots of them happening. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and also, it seems like you're going through the ladder of the entrepreneur design. Like, exactly. Yeah, course, I'm, I, yeah. I'm going through the SVA ladder. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I could ever replicate that. But anyway, that was like the funniest thing I've ever oh. thought of. And but, I will never think of another funny thing. No, but, but like that's the thing that like something resonates and you're just like, wait, I had no idea that these are the kind of things that resonate right, with people. Right, exactly. Um, but in a slightly, I wanted to fit that in just to brag, yeah. but. <laughs> it is. But, I mean, I've never gotten a tweet with 3,000 likes. <laughs> um, I outtweeted Sana. Um, but as someone who uh, you would call yourself an introvert, right? Uh, but. The online world gives people who in real life may find it harder to um, be be vocal in a room that, or, or be with other people and, and get energy from that. Actually, you can still get energy from having that conversation online. Um, and I just wonder whether that feeds back into your, your confidence in the real world uh, by being able to kind of, I don't want to say play the game, but being able to be extroverted and opinionated on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's, a, it's a journey, right? Like when I first started, like anyone, like we used to see this in research over and over again at Twitter where people were like, I don't tweet because I don't have anything to say. Um, and I don't know if my opinions matter. Um, and that is, a, that is a very common human, like it's not just introverts. Like people are like, why should I, I don't have anything unique to say. Why should I yeah. say it? Why should I add to the noise? And that's totally legitimate, right? And also there's like the idea that everyone should have an opinion is an extremely, like, American-centric uh, way of thinking about like, online expression. Um, but I think what I found, and especially through that, you know, the entrepreneurial design course, is that I, I don't have to have an opinion about everything, but there are certain things that I, I have, you know, I have specific viewpoint on that other people don't. And you won't realize that that's unique to you unless you talk to people about it. Um, and definitely, like, being able to be at the luxury of crafting the perfect sentence um, and not have to do it improv um, gives you the comfort and gives you the confidence over time to be like, as you said, like you suddenly get likes and you're like, oh, well, this resonates with people. And obviously I don't want to feed into the whole like external validation is the only way <laughs> that you want, that you build your confidence. But like, I, I do think it helps to say, okay, I expressed an opinion um, and it made sense to yeah. people. Um, and people, like, sometimes people will reply to me or, like, come back and, like, DM me or say, like, oh, my God, I had no idea that there were other people who were thinking about this. And that moment of connection, actually, is is the point where you realize that what you, your voice, no matter how small it is and no matter how many, how crowded it is um, in the room that your voice is, like, it's important to have that voice. And especially, and, like, and I do feel that, that, uh, responsibility a little bit more because there aren't a lot of people who come from the you know my background and I and I remember 
when I first started out in tech, like I didn't, I looked around, didn't see anyone who looked like me, who, you know, was from my background, who had my ac- confused accent, right? Yeah. It, it just wasn't a, a thing. So if I had that, like represent, that's why representation matters. Like if I, if I had that, I would have been like, oh, this is the path this person's taken. So it seems like it's possible. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, one of the reasons why I do feel like if if people feel feel like they have a they want to have uh, a space to talk but don't have the confidence, mm-hmm. you kind of just have to go over, get over that. And like Twitter is or like written expression generally is a great way to do that because you get to to be thoughtful about something and articulate and craft your uh, argument and your narrative. Um, and over time, you get confidence. You know what? I'd never thought of it in that way as as. I don't know if this is necessarily exactly correlated with introversion, but that desire to want to really think about what you say and say it very carefully. And actually, if you're in a room with a bunch of people and everyone's shouting ideas, there's no time. There's no time to think about. And you can't say, I want to say something. Give me five minutes to work out what I want to say. By then, all the extroverts have piled in and and had their own opinion. Um, Crafting that space to be able to... And I suppose you're a big fan of poetry as well, and that is kind of the ultimate expression of say something in as few words as possible in exactly the right way um yeah interesting uh you touched on diversity and uh, that was a big topic of conversation when we worked together at Deliveroo but um I'm sure you also saw that happening at Twitter and trying to solve that problem there um and specifically mentioning dramatically changing the um the diversity within the team in quite a short space of time or seeing that happen. So for those teams out there thinking, oh crap, there's like one woman and 19 dudes on the team or, um, you know, there's no people of colour or whatever the the thing is that they're trying to solve. Any tips? Yeah, sure. So um, I think for context, like we, when I joined uh, Twitter, the team was um, not, as I said, like was not diverse. It was just five women in the team and, um, including research, including like brand and all of these. And so I remember like, you know, th- at that point, that was the one time when like stories around GitHub and like a lot of these things were coming out. And like suddenly, the, you know, everyone in the Valley was like having a crisis and like, oh, wow, like we've never thought about this before. Obviously, it's a very privileged position. It is a privileged, like geographically, a very privileged place to be in. Um, um, it's like you always said, it was like designing from a place where you're, one percent of the one percent. Um, so you don't. People were not thinking about that, and then suddenly everyone is talking about it in media. And so you, you, we, you know that that became a great way for us in the team, the five women who used to keep talking about it all the time. Um, go like this is a great way for us to demonstrate um, what this actually means. And what what we did was like um, we had like uh, amazing, incredible women in the team. Like two of them, I remember, like uh, Colleen Bake, um, you know, Jen Cotton. Um, Liz Farrell, and they, they basically kind of got um, everyone, the whole team in a room, um, and we did a fireside chat. Um, and basically, the whole point of it was not to not to victim, uh, you know, not to victimize yourself, not to not to play the blame game, but just put everything out in the open. Um, and I think the thing that uh, Colleen uh, and Liz did was like basically had sent out a survey earlier, uh, asking people uh, almost like how they would how they would rate the team, how, you know, they would like to um, get people to work here 
people they know and split it with gender. Mm. And that was such an interesting way. Obviously, we were a data-driven company, so that was like, oh, cool, now you have something to start the conversation on. Um, and um, and that was great. That was a great starting point, but that was not the focus of the conversation. And there was one uh, one conversation I remember particularly where one of our designers, uh, Jana, uh, Shamis, uh, she basically was talking about how when you're sitting in a room um, where, where you're like the only only woman in the whole room, just having one other woman in the room and like being able to look at each other <laughs> and acknowledge um, when something shitty happening. Something's happening. <laughs> yeah goes such a huge way. And and I remember like other other designers, like male designers sitting there going, like having this like light bulb moment and going, I had no idea that that is all that was needed. Um, and obviously all, no, all that was needed, but like all that was needed to at least make the one person who's in a minority not feel as uncomfortable or as isolated. Um, and, you know, Mike Davidson, who was our head of design research at that point, was... Um, Obviously, like he's on is someone who I would like, you know, I, I believe that you need you if you believe in these things, you should be a sponsor and not a mentor mm-hmm. because you don't have enough skin in the game if you're just mentoring. Uh, and he, you know, very early acknowledged that like, he comes from a privileged position himself. And so he was like, I don't know enough about this. And he was willing to go, you know, you know about this. You have ideas. You have free reign go and do what you think. You have my full support, full sponsorship. I will do whatever it, it takes to get this team to where you want it to be. And, uh, and like we all got in a room and thought of like a thousand ideas. Like we started the mentorship program. We started um, like so many different small programs, like university outreach, mm-hmm. getting high school students in. Basically, it was like, you know, a thousand different ways. It wasn't this one big magic switch you flipped open. Yeah. Um, and... Within a year, we had reached like 50%, you know, at least uh, gender. And obviously the other balances and inclusion comes later because like at least the gender one should be the simplest one to fix. And we got to a um, balance and that was, it became like such a success story that everyone in the rest of the company were like, tell us how to do this because we want to replicate. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember that uh, one of the common complaints or, or justifications give not being able to achieve gender diversity is uh, only men apply. Um, so I remember this being a conversation that we had at Deliveroo at the time. So what are some of the things that you would say specifically around there are lots of excellent female designers, you know, the people from all backgrounds that do a great job at your company but they're not applying. So how do you get them to apply? Yeah, definitely. So um, I think, and it's interesting in that, like the current position that I'm in as a design leader, like that that problem gets even more amplified at, at positions of leadership, right? Because there's a very clear glass ceiling and a glass cliff almost um, where you don't see the point where you fall off. Um, and in ICs, that's very much the case, but like at leadership is even more so. Um, and I think the the biggest, um, like, um, I mean, there's like studies which say that women don't apply. They don't feel like they fit their criteria 100%. And like there's been like arguments for and against, you know, every every study online. But I think the one of the smallest ways you can do this is like by making sure that your job post is not a list of requirements, uh, is not a 
you know, a checklist of this many number of years and this much qualification, because quite often, like a lot, it's very tempting to hire people who have demonstrated yeah. uh, experience. Uh, but the reality of the industry is that fewer women and fewer people who are, who are underrepresented have been given the opportunity to demonstrate yeah. uh, the ability. But they have the ability. It doesn't mean they have the they don't have the ability. So like hiring for that, that curve. Hiring it's a vicious for that cycle curve. as well, right? The, the less you hire those people, the less they can then prove. Exactly. <laughs> and there's very much, the you know, in the Valley, in tech, in, in a lot of businesses, like this idea of filling up where like people who work at a company who might not be, um, you know, best suited for those positions, like leave those positions and just because of the name, uh, they fail up, they get to a better position because, you know, they are they are a white man in a position that was a director position or a VP yeah. position. No one's checking if that was actually <laughs> a good, like the name brings the feeling up. And Absolutely. so the other, the way to combat is like to help people, like to stand at the ledge and help people up uh, and not expect that people will, you know, get in and from day one, yeah. like start getting it because like most often they've had to combat a lot of things to even get to position. So they probably bring a lot more experience in, in unique ways that like someone who would have demonstrated a linear ladder trajectory would not have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to this subject, but with a different context. So, uh, Twitter, you left Twitter. Yep. What next? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, um, I actually uh, left Twitter San Francisco and moved to Twitter London. Um, A lot of it was because I wanted to be not in the Valley. (laughs) Um, And I I found it uh, like extremely, like coming from a developing country, I just found it uh, very hypocritical to be in a place that was so privileged and design tools and products um, that were for the world. And I, I would notice I would go back to India and like the things that I was designing would not even load, would right. not even. So it was like, what am I, what are you doing? Wow. Like you're spending so much time designing these things that like a majority of the world can't even access. Um, and, you know, and not to say that I'm, I'm not in a privileged bubble in London too, right? London is its own like financial privilege bubble, bubble. But like to me, like coming to London was an attempt to be, uh, to be in a place which has so much levels, so many levels of diversity, uh, where you you cannot avoid it. Like you go, go out in the tube, and it's the it's the ultimate democratizer, yeah. um, where everyone is there traveling in this like thing together. Um, so that was, and then I um, had no intention actually of, to being here in London long term. Um, I just wanted to experience what it would like to be work to like to live in a city which was so. Uh, diverse and you know central, um, and then um, I got an email from Deliveroo, um, and I had not heard too much about Deliveroo, but I'd used the service. It was the first app that I, I downloaded in London <laughs> when I was in my like commuter apartment, yeah. um, and I remember thinking about like, oh, this is really well done, um, and you know, I was not a, I was not a part of the tech scene here. I did I was not connected to anyone, so I was like, you know, why not? Like, let me let me go chat. And uh, like months and months of coffees <laughs> later, um, I found myself at Deliveroo. Um, and it was, you know, er, you were there at that time. We yeah. were in this like small little apartment or like office space with like stained carpets. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember walking in the first day. I didn't even have a seat. A true uh, startup. <laughs> true yeah. startup. I didn't even have a table to go to. And I'm like, 
what do I, what have I, what have I landed myself into? Um, and, you know, but I think the, the thing that got me to Deliveroo was, was all the people, like, you know, meeting you, meeting everyone in the team. Uh, and it was very intentional in that I, I was, you know, I felt like I was comfortable with the craft aspect of it. And I wanted to, the thing that was, you know, was always laddering up to was the people and the connection. And I wanted to specifically focus on that part of my career. And like, to me, like meeting everyone felt like, you know, you spend majority of your time in place, in like in, in a workplace and you spend so much of your time with your colleagues, probably more than you spend with your family. Yeah. Um, and I was like, these, these are incredible people and like kind and generous and thoughtful and I want to spend time with them. Yeah. And uh, that was what, three years ago? That was two years ago. Two years ago. It feels like wow. longer. That's crazy, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah, so a lot has happened since then, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot has happened. The classic scale, uh, you know, the same scale that I, you know, I saw at Twitter, but it feels like it's more accelerated. Yeah. The stuff that I saw in four years has, like, been squished into two years at Deliveroo. Yeah. You joined at a time, I mean, with Deliveroo as kind of the, the design or then CRD team, and we can get on to, to, <laughs> to that. Um, under Simon's tutelage, uh, who's the, the ex-head uh, of design, VP of design, even, uh, at, at Deliveroo, and both of our bosses um, grew from, well, when I joined four to, I'm not sure where we were at when you joined, but uh, it's kind of keeps kept morphing into different, as, as these things do, as companies grow, and especially a company that technologically is so complex, Deliveroo is kind of like the duck swimming along uh, and, you know, paddling furiously under the water to make sure that you can order your food feels seamless. So, and you were in charge of one of the teams that was doing a lot of the paddling. Well, I was the duck's head, so I was, <laughs> it was kind of easy um, at the time. Um, but now, since you're, you're working on consumer, right, um, or have been, and so I haven't been around for, for a little while, so I'm, I'm kind of a bit rusty on, on what's been going on. So um, there's been a whole bunch of like organizational change, I suppose. Um, and I think one of the things that is most interesting at Deliveroo, definitely in, in London tech, feels like one of the first companies to really been thinking actively about things like integrated search content and building a, a diverse team in terms of... Um, skill set and that's kind of been going on for a little while but then there's also been other forces happening as well so what's catch me up what's what's been going on for the last yeah sure so when you left i think we were still in you know what i would call the, the state a utopian state for <laughs> content research and design um and i think because like simon and charlotte who's the head of research was were there so early on um I think design and research and like content uh, was so deeply embedded into the DNA of the company that like, you know, you never really had to justify people going to different countries to do research like every week or um, design decisions, right? And like I remember coming there first and like coming from a company which was so engineering driven um, and having a bit of like, what what am I supposed to do with all this time that I'm not justifying my existence? Um <laughs> And it was incredible. Like, it was such a gift to be able to do that. Um, but obviously, like, the like utopia, like, only lasts for a certain amount of time when you're not externally accountable for, uh, for you know, to shareholders to, or to, like, uh, 
big stakeholder. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, um, funders, so basically, yeah. like, uh, as the company has grown, especially over the last year or so, um, as we've gotten more and more funding from more and more mature investors, they, you know, they demand a lot more majority and they demand a lot more, like, um, thinking about the business in a much more nuanced way than we were doing before. Um, and so over the last year, we've, we've focused a lot more on business. And, mm. and I think the, the thing that I've noticed a lot in design industry everywhere, especially in London, because I think London tech is a little bit uh, a few years behind, um, is that a lot of companies are not in that, never have not, not navigated the stage where they have to develop the language to work with business uh, mm -hmm. and, and and help business partners understand the commercial implications of the design. And um, that transition is massive for designers. Uh, it's massive because you essentially have to change your language completely. You you become you turn from being a maker to a strategist. And that is a very difficult transition to make. Um, and it's very difficult transition to make as a group of people. Um, and especially in a market where you don't have a lot of people to look at and say, they've done this before. Um, and so over the last year, that's the transition that the team's making um, and like being involved and like in at the receiving end of certain decisions that quite frankly are amazing for the business that help the business grow. It's a good problem to have that the business is growing at the scale that it's growing and you have to figure out how to best leverage the discipline to have impact. It puts people in positions where they're having to do things, redefine what their role is. And some people like that and other people say, you know what, I'm a more early stage person or yeah. <laughs> I like um, the craft. Or Absolutely. And I think every every company that scales goes through this where you have this like transition. So I was talking about the transition from Twitter when, they, when we IPO'd, like is exactly the same thing. When, when people, certain people like, you know, like to expand their skill sets and go like, you know, are certain life stages where they're like, you know, I'm going to experiment. Whether mm -hmm. certain people who've done that or are kind of like very confident in the stage of the company that they feel like they best, that brings out the best in them or they're comfortable in. And like what's natural is that as companies grow, these transitions become bigger scale. Yeah. Uh, when you're a small company of 10 people, um, you grow to double the size. It's 20 people. Like it's the the impact of it on the team is not that big, but when you grow from you know a thousand people company to a three thousand people company, that the processes and the things and the skill sets that are required, the transition is so big, and the it's so visible, um, and it has such a huge impact on on culture and how people relate to each other, um, that like you have to be a lot more deliberate about it and a lot more. Like you have to kind of take a little bit more of a zoomed out perspective on these things and almost look at it from an organizational design standpoint rather than like design of the pixels and how is this affecting my pixels. Right. Um, and that's been really interesting to me. And I like, you know, one of the reasons I came to deliver and uh, I enjoyed my time. At just like, I love like the being, being like kind of from an anthropological perspective, seeing how like companies are living organisms and they yeah. change and adapt and grow towards the sun and yeah. you know develop spikes like yeah. all of those things like based on what the environment demands of them yeah and go through periods of hardship either enforced hardship or deliberate hardship um, because change is hard and 
you can't what's the saying about eggs you have to you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs maybe that's is that a saying i think um some of that stuff you have to you have to and definitely when you're talking to the team you have to say this is going to be crap for a while and this isn't necessarily what you signed up for and you're going to have to change because we're all going to change but it's going to result in these great things for the business um and you have to hope that they come along on the journey with you um because they believe in that they understand the context of the business enough they understand what is needed to happen above those the, the love for any particular hard skill or craft skill or whatever is that they previously doing need to be comfortable being adaptable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's exactly the stage we're in at the moment. And we're like, you know, our scale is shifting and the and you know what development and business needs from like the team is very different from a year ago. And so we're like, you know, the transitions are hard. And I'm uh I I've you know thought a lot about like what kind of like leader I want to be and emulate. And I look up to people who are uh and I I'm not the kind of person who I'm not the duck that that like you know everything's great and it's yeah. going to be incredible and the reality the situation is quite different. Um I like to bring like I'm someone who like you should I don't believe in manager speak like people should know exactly what they've signed up for. Walk into a situation like with eyes open. Yeah. Um but like you know still man like you have to be the shit umbrella like there's certain things they shouldn't have to deal with but there are things that that if you if you give people the right tools toolkit and right context they will create a yeah. toolkit themselves they will rise up to the occasion and that's exactly like you know what what is happening now at, at the moment and like you know previously the team was so small um they were used to having a very you know heavy management support um and kind of like experienced leadership guiding them and the funnel of opportunity was smaller in that like you know we were just just trying to compete Yeah. Uh we were the things that we had to do were so obvious because you were just building table stakes at that mm. moment. We you know, infrastructure was failing like we needed to build those things. Um and about a year ago or so we got to a point where the funnel of opportunity widened and yeah. in that case like what you have to do is no longer obvious um and no longer something that someone's going to tell you to do. So uh, the skill sets that you need to develop then are are not the maker skill sets. and uh, the skill set that you need is to be able to zoom out and think about what the business needs um and what the users need and being able to marry that um and craft uh, a vision around it craft a narrative around it and help people get on board and uh, that's the skill set that we're we're in the stage of developing is it fair to say that this is part of a transition of delivery from startup to or scale up or i don't know whatever title you want to give it into a real business that has to then survive in the world be republic or and and then and then be um be able to report earnings and and um, live for 5 to 10 decades in the future yeah absolutely i think it's just like the awkward teenage years yeah. is the way i like to call it like it's hard this painful growing like the growing pains um but this is the moment where a lot of your foundation of how how uh you're going to exist as a business and what kind of business are you going to be um and what the identity of like research and content and design is going to be within a a business um that works this way like get get have to be redefined and reset almost yeah so within that world 
Uh, you wrote a blog post recently about moving or how the organization has changed to kind of a new structure. Uh, I think there's some interesting parts to that which correspond with a bit of the Spotify model around squads and tribes. Um, change the, the uh, reporting lines in interesting ways. So can you kind of describe that briefly? Um, so I think previously we were building towards um, a model which was uh, you know, very much designed for smaller, tighter-knit, uh, discipline-led teams. Um, in that like design was the first discipline, then research came and then content came. And so like quite organically, the design team was then called the research and design team and then called the content research and design team. Yeah. Right? Quite literal. But I think the intent was to make sure that all the three disciplines were regarded as equal, which is not something I feel like a lot of even mature companies have managed to do. Like we, you know, like there are a lot of bigger companies who have like one content designer to 100 designers. Um, and we are now at a point where we have equal number of people for all those three disciplines. And that's something we strongly believed. And I know like Simon kind of like spearheaded quite a lot of. Um, and I think we got to a stage where um, we felt like we were comfortable, like, you know, the discipline identities were comfortable. People had defined their own rituals and their own like methodologies and units and communities in those disciplines. And so we no longer needed to be inward facing that yeah. way. Um, and what was needed from the business uh, and what was needed for in terms of maturity of the team was to like, now that we had developed this way to hone our craft, now to kind of think outward and kind of figure out how do we align ourselves towards uh, the business, you know, vertical that you're a part of. Right. Um, and so the latest move basically um, means that, you know, you, there's one leader for each business vertical. So there's restaurants, there's rider, there's, there's um, growth, there's consumer. And there's one person who is the, the, you know, the leader, the manager for the whole group. And they manage content designers, like product designers and researchers. Um, and it's not, it's agnostic of the disciplines that they manage because what they're thinking about is not the craft of the discipline, yeah. but they're thinking about business context and how to be a prod, like a partner to product and bring, uh, bring that kind of thinking from all the three disciplines um, in a kind of like unified way to that level. And there you're talking about line management or are you talking about uh, more of, I suppose, leadership in terms of strategy? Both. Um, and it's interesting because we mulled over that quite a lot. And previously, like the line management was squarely with the discipline leaders. Like the research head used to manage all the researchers across all the groups. Um, and I think that what it became really, really difficult to manage was that the day-to-day time that people were spending was within their product groups. Um, and the person that had the most context of their progression or the work that they were doing were actually the manager in the group yeah. who was the design manager because we just had more design managers at that point in time. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like, I think people were just used to um, anyway going to, to that person who were more present in that group. Um, and so it, we were just kind of like tried to it's almost like things were organically emerging, but we also just made it official in that like the, the role of the discipline lead was no longer trying to line manage people where they would ne they would not be able to get the context of it. End up spending majority of their time just getting the context yeah. instead of coaching them. And now their their job is basically like coaching and basically discipline leadership and methodologies and community, all of those things. And because they're not not thinking about, you know, they're not the line manager, 
the kind of coaching they can give is like very, very different. Uh, on a different level, it's a lot more about like working together and building this together. Yeah, and it's kind of the, the, the power dynamic between those changes dramatically when one person isn't also responsible for the other person. And exactly. Aggression. Fascinating. So fairly early stages with this, right? Very, very early. Um, I don't think we've fully settled into the role yet. Um, but I do think that what it's allowed is just a single point of point, point of contact and source of truth. Um, and it's allowed for, uh, you know, strategy to be uh, consolidated. Uh, and, you know, there's one place where people talk about it and all the three are included rather than, you know, design being in one room talking about strategy and research rather than talking about strategy. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to end going back to something that you said earlier around mentorship versus sponsorship. But I think a lot of people don't really know what the difference between those two words are. Is. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear about people that have been your sponsors um, and people that are on your, your personal team, if you like, uh, and how that differs from someone who is merely a mentor. And uh, for those people internally who want to sponsor others within a team, how that might work as well. You know, if you're not in a position where you're line managing someone uh, and you don't necessarily feel like you have a mandate to um, be able to have a formal one-to-one and kind of guide them in that way, but you want to support team or to help, how might people be able to kind of, and actually how might managers encourage that kind of behavior across teams as well? Yeah, totally. So I think sponsorship is something that like, you know, is very um dear to me because I, I don't think I would have, you know, been given half the opportunities that I've been given if I didn't have incredibly generous uh, people who were looking out for me and sponsoring me. So, uh, you know, like one of the first people I can think of is Erin Moore, who is, um, who is a senior designer at Twitter. Um, and she kind of um, was almost like this presence in that she was this voice of reason and this voice of like she, there was no nothing compelling her to do it. I didn't ask her to do it. Um, but, you know, there was there's something that she felt really strongly about having more women in uh, the product teams and having more representation. And so she kind of just co- coached me through the whole process of like even like applying for a place like Twitter, which I didn't even have uh, any understanding of. And like even things like um, what do you what do you how do you negotiate? Right, like those things, like I read this book, I forget who it was by, but in uh, SVA, it was called Women Don't Ask, <laughs> uh, which is really true. Like, And like, especially when you're in a country where your existence depends on the visa, you're, like uh, that a company is going to sponsor, you're much less likely to play the game where you're negotiating because you have so much more at stake. Um, and I remember like when I was first talking to Twitter, I was like, I, I was just like, please, like, I just want this job. Just, I don't <laughs> like, I just, I, otherwise I will literally have to leave the country. Yeah. And I remember talking to Erin and she was like, no, like there is there is no way that you are going to give in to this. Like you have to um, uh, kind of be comfortable asking for something that you feel you deserve. Um, and we had a, a, a teacher or a, a professor in uh, SVA, Karen McGrain, um, who taught this course called Design Management. And um, she said one thing that I like stuck with me always. It's like, you know, anyone, but especially women, especially underrepresented group, always ask for a number that you're uncomfortable saying. Um, 
because most time most of the time you just you know supremely underestimate Right. the value that you will bring. You've undervalued yourselves. You should just build that into your calculation. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so like people like that, like Liz Danzico, like, you know, for giving me an opportunity to come to a course, um, you know, like a, accepting me to a course which literally changed my life. Mm-hmm. Mike Davidson, who I think has gone far and beyond, uh, you know, like going to places, going to HR, fighting for me, like, you know, just going to every possible length to kind of get me what... I, you know, I felt I deserved and he felt I deserved. Um, and a, a lot of times people forget that it's easy to kind of sit back and go, you know what, this is what you do. Like advice is cheap. Mm-hmm. You can just, you can be the mentor and say, oh, you know, like this is what I would do in your situation and kind of just leave leave it on the other person. And like it was, it would have been very easy for Erin or Mike to go, oh, you're you're not getting what you feel you deserve. Like, here you go. Here are the five tips. All right, bye. <laughs> yeah, go figure it out. Yeah. Uh, there was no reason that, you know, he had to go to HR himself and fight. You know, there was no reason that he had to connect me to people who he felt like, you know, would are, are in positions industry, in the industry where, you know, I needed to be connected with those people. Like yeah. Gary Chu, like he's the ultimate connector. Like he, he will connect you with people um, who he feels will help you grow and progress. Um, and that is skin in the game. Yeah. Because when you put your name and like recommend someone and say like I will coach you through this process, that's when you it's truly believe. It's a reputational believe. risk for you as well, right? Exactly, and that's when you truly believe that this, like, you're going to go the length, and you're going, you know, this person loves it. And that's what I like, you know, uh, I, you know, seek to do as well. And like, obviously, it's very easy to forget about those things because it mm. takes so much effort and so much time. To do that, uh, but I think this is how you overcome problems like diversity, like inclusion. Like you have to have in the game to bring people up, yeah. because they've been trying to to claw themselves up for a really long time. Absolutely. Um, I've got two things I want to ask you about or, or move on to. But first of all, just on that, uh, I wonder if there's there's kind of something that's quite actionable in that for anyone listening who is in a, an organization where they can see that there is someone brilliant they believe in. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be actually internal. It shouldn't always be, but there are, there are more immediate opportunities there probably to see others who they think are brilliant uh, and could use sponsorship to, to just actively go and do it. Uh, not sit and assume that the other person is going to work out on their own because they're brilliant. Because actually, they still just need that, that support. When I think about sponsoring people and finding sponsors, uh, they don't always also come from the places you expect. Uh, and it's and there are people that are incredibly giving their, themselves and their time and their reputation and all of those other things. So kind of being open to that and asking for things that want to start those relationships yeah i think that that thing though like a lot of people are too afraid to ask mm-hmm. um so it, it becomes this thing where people don't ask and people like who are in positions to give don't are not perceptive enough to notice when someone wants or needs something but is not asking um and the only way like you actually have someone like i've seen this work is like you know when you're in physically in the same space you're in the same company and you have like you have you're able to come across someone and go 
okay, I can see that this is what's happening. But when you're when you're not connected in any way, there's no way that someone's going to read your mind and know. So I think the first step is like just being open and asking for what you need um, and putting it out there. And like maybe people will not, maybe it will not resonate, but maybe someone will see it and say, I went through the same thing. I want to do this. Right. Um, and then like it's also like on people who have gone through those journeys and come to a place where uh, they feel like they've you know accomplished something to set aside time and thought and effort for that because it is not easy for anyone and like no matter anywhere like no matter where you are it's your job yeah. to like lift people yeah. who are trying to get there. and it's and I, I'm not gonna I'm not you know gonna lie and say like I'm amazing at this I definitely fall into patterns where I'm too into the work that I'm doing at the moment the problems that I'm trying to solve at the moment to forget that the only way like you have like you lift the community overall is to think about the community not about yourself um okay so finally and this kind of touches on we've riffed on a different podcast idea uh, <laughs> which maybe we won't uh, accidentally say we're going to do uh, on this one but i am white and male and um, have had an incredibly privileged upbringing uh, lots of things have come my way as a result of that and i have found it an interesting learning experience to work out how to, and I'm nowhere near good at it yet, but to be an ally in the kind of, in the fight for better inclusion. Uh, lifting everyone up. But it's really interesting to see the, this kind of, this challenge that you have as someone who naturally finds it harder to empathise with these problems which I do, and I would. it's fair to say most people who are like me haven't felt that pain themselves. They don't have that lived experience, so it's hard to naturally just pick up on this This is this situation isn't okay for someone. Um, and the argument, the argument that is often made is uh, it should be everyone's job, not just the people who have, who have that lived experience. But it's naturally easier for everyone to go hey you're the minority <laughs> how do we solve this um and even me i'm you know i'm now literally doing this i'm like asking you about this but um what are some things what are some other things that uh, people like me can do to better educate ourselves i'm doing air quotes here because uh, educate yourself is like a common um, thing that we're told to do hard to even know what that means um, how can how can we help? Yeah, so I think um, you know we've talked about this a little bit before um, as well. Is like I think the first step is to not think that you can't empathize um, because everyone has been in a situation where they have felt excluded, um, and so it's it's about like understanding what that felt like, um, and obviously not saying that like being you know in a school where you are the only introvert or in a class. Uh, and that the exclusion that bring, bring, brings is like equivalent to someone being prosecuted. Uh, but you understand, you have the kernels of what it feels like to not belong. Um, and so like on tapping into that and not excluding yourself from the em like you know, the empathy narrative is extremely important. Um, the other side of it is like, I think it's okay to ask people to do like, you know, this exactly is what you do. But 
think recognizing that um, the person has a right to say no. Um, because I've been through phases myself where like, you know, I was an extreme, like at Twitter and even like early stages delivery, like I was a champion for this. And I'm like, I'm going to put everything, you know, in this to like help people understand this because I care about this so deeply. But a lot of times, and you'll see this in everyone who's, you know, like person, like person of color who's done this work, you get burned out. Like mm. you get tired of saying the same thing over and over again. And you just need to retreat for some time. And I think I definitely had that moment where I was like, you know, I'm, I just want to take a break. Uh, and, you know, at that moment, when if someone had come and said, like, it's your job to teach me, I would have been like, no, it's not my job. Um, but, you know, when I recovered, um, I was able to come back into the narrative. And so I think the onus is like actually being okay with uh, being wrong, being okay with ask, asking that this is place that I'm in and I would like help uh, on and it's okay for you to say no yeah. um, and it, it's not an expectation that you will help resolve this thing for me um, and coming to the the table with viewpoints whether they're right or wrong um, and and talking about it in a constructive way that you can you can learn through that and just being I think a lot of it is just recognizing that you will never be an ally fully um, like I will never be an ally fully either, right? Regardless of my intersectionality, like I have a lot of privileges too, right? Like I was able to go have an incredible education. I'm able-bodied. I'm cisgender. Like yeah. I have a lot of privileges that like a lot of other people in the world don't. And for me to say that I can't empathize with that will not cut it. Uh, I will have to be like, okay, these are the ways that I can empathize with it. And I would like to learn your lived experience, but it's okay for you to say no. And yeah. like come back to this you feel like the asking for help versus the expecting it to be solved for you exactly hard stuff isn't it it is yeah <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, hard to talk about I think yeah. this stuff is really hard to talk about yeah I do think that like willingness to talk about this like I think you're like talking about this right now in this room like knowing that it it could be like you could make a faux pas you could say yeah. something wrong is absolutely what we need like we need more people who go like I am okay about yeah. this being the stupidest thing I've ever said. Yeah. But please, like, help me. Yeah, being being okay to be wrong. But, um, yeah, I think if you shut down all those those conversations and you shut people down as they say something wrong, people will stop saying anything or they'll start saying wrong stuff to their friends. And then, then you get subcultures and you get... Yeah, and then you get this us and them and, like, the vic- like you know, the victim game. After that. Yeah, yeah. Sana, so I think we've talked for ages I have no idea what the time is uh, <laughs> um, thank you very much for joining me and uh, I'm sure you have lots of other things to do on this sunny Friday um, hiring to do right oh my god yes uh, it was an amazing I had an amazing good good um, and uh, I'm sure if anyone has any questions they can find you where? on Twitter uh, yeah. at Sanarao S-N-A-R-A-O. okay excellent yeah follow Sana great on Twitter and she designed off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right.